Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, will you find your place with me in the book of Job? The book of Job, right next to the book of Psalms, so about midway through your Bible, we'll find the book of Job together. We've been on a journey for some time now, um, walking through the Old Testament, really, and what we've seen is God's work to pattern, predict, and portray His ultimate plan of redemption in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah who is to save sinners. What we learn from Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Luke, especially after His resurrection, what we learn from Jesus as He taught His disciples is that All the Bible is really pointing us to see the glory of Christ and the sufferings of Christ. Luke 24, you can read more about that. So today we turn our attention to the book of Job. Job's story is a painful read, honestly, uh, as it describes the intense sufferings of a good man. And his struggle to believe in a God who he knew was in control of all of it. And if we're honest, we can relate to Job in all the ways that we wish we couldn't. Right? We can relate to Job in his despair and in his doubt. What we know from Job and even hopefully from ourselves is that true faith is actually forged In the furnace of affliction. It's in the deepest, darkest trials of your life that you actually discover what you really believe. Not just what you say you believe. It's easy to say God is good, right? When you're on the mountaintop. When everything is good. When the job's going well, the family's going well. There's plenty of this, plenty of that. It's easy to say God is good then. But when life sinks to deep Suffering, do you still believe it then? Well, the, the wonderful thing about the Bible is it doesn't paint life with pastels. It actually is raw and real and honest. And Job is one of those books. What we see here, the people are real. The struggle is real. The lives they live are messy. And truthfully, this is exactly what we need, right? Yes. We need uh, the truth. Because truth, the truth of God is the salve that a hurting soul needs. So my prayer for you today, if you are struggling, if you're in a deep hole, is that God would come to you and comfort you there, not with answers to your many questions necessarily, but with the greatness of who he is. A lot of this sermon series has been through narrative stories, and that's pretty easy to follow because you just... You just work your way through the text. Well, this is, this is what was happening. This is what it means. And this is how it points us to Christ. Like that's pretty easy to walk through. Um, but the book of Job is different. It is the beginning of wisdom literature. It's also mostly poetry. And so it's a bit more challenging. Um, it, this book has a, a prologue and an epilogue, which is basically a few chapters at the beginning and the end where uh, it is historical narrative. It is kind of unfolding a story. And then the middle chapters, chapters 3 through 37, are rich, ornate poetry. 
The reason that's important is because if you don't know those things, it impacts how you read and interpret the Bible. So as we read through this book, what we find is that there are over 330 questions in the book of Job. That's an unusually high amount of questions. I think the Gospel of Matthew only has 130, something like that, in the whole Gospel. So in Job's, in this book about Job, there's 330 questions. There's a reason for that, you know. When something tragic happens in life, a sudden car accident, a cancer diagnosis, tragic death of a loved one, our hearts are filled and dominated with questions, aren't they? So it would make sense that in the life of a man who's suffering and the story of his suffering, that much of the book would be filled with questions. So as we come to Job, we see it's raw, it's unedited, it's the, the depths of pain and suffering. And um, we must remind ourselves that our mission is not just to get to the why of our suffering, but rather the who of the Savior who is with us for us through it all. So let's dive in together. We're going to read 42 chapters. You ready? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of you thought I was serious, though. Will you stand to your feet as we read? We will read a, a large chunk of the beginning of the book of Job just to get the flavor of it. Um, we're going to try to tackle the whole book today. Um, so get some coffee if you need to. Here we go. Job chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, he did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen they were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burnt up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, there came yet another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with a loathsome sores from sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Let's pray. Our Father, God of heaven and earth, you are Lord on our good days and our bad days. Would you today open our hearts to see your sovereign grace through Job's story, through his suffering? We all know pain on some level. And each of us have or will wrestle 
with a crisis of belief because of suffering. We ask you today, Lord, that you would stir up faith in our hearts. We want to trust you. Lord, we want to treasure you. This is our prayer. In the name of Christ, amen. You can be seated. So there's almost nothing more certain in this life than suffering, right? And so when inevitable trouble comes to you and me, we often wonder why. It's one of the biggest questions we ask when there's suffering, when there's death, when there's cancer, when there's something heavy Traumatic, something we couldn't control, something terrible. We often wonder why. And Job's mess further complicates things because, well, the Bible tells us multiple times that Job is blameless. He is upright. I mean, honestly, if Job were a cruel man who had sinned greatly against God, we probably wouldn't have much of a story here. There have been many people who've suffered terrible things because of judgment from God over their sin. But and his suffering would, would be expected. It would be part of the storyline we would anticipate. But it is actually his upstanding character that makes his suffering so troubling, isn't it? We can see even what his friends later in the story cannot. Job has three friends that come to comfort him Chapters 3 through 37 are this comfort that they offer. And essentially what they say repeatedly in a cycle of speeches is, you've done something terrible. We just don't know what it is. But no one suffers like you're suffering apart from doing something terrible. God is getting you. That's what they keep telling Job. It's very comforting. But we can see what his friends cannot because we're getting the narrator's version of the story where, and, and we're hearing conversations from God himself. God himself says Job is blameless. He's upright. He fears the Lord. He's, he's faithful. He's walking with God in integrity. Relatively speaking, Job did not deserve this level of suffering. We'd have to admit that and then struggle with it. Like, Why? Well, that's one reason. Another reason this story is so difficult is because God initiates Job's suffering. And this is incredibly troubling. We, we get a glimpse actually into, into a spiritual realm that is, is super rare in Scripture. We're seeing a conversation happening in the heavenly throne room between God and Satan. And it seems that they agree to test Job's resolve, to test his faith through terrible trials. This cosmic encounter on the surface doesn't make this story more palatable, does it? It actually stirs up more questions. Let me give you a few. Why in the world would God initiate this? How does a good God permit Satan to cause such evil? 
And I, I get it. Like if we're testing Job's faith, okay, I get that. But what about all the servants and the animals, his sons and daughters, who have either been stolen or killed in this whole test? How is this? How does this happen? How is this test of Job's faith worth all this casualty? Now, if you're not willing to ask hard questions like that, then you really don't want a deep faith. You settled for something shallow. And what I want to tell you is that shallow faith will not sustain you in your own suffering. We must come to know this God. This is the point of Job. The point of Job is to discover who he is, not get all the answers to all our whys, but to know who this God is. See, Satan actually wants to destroy Job's faith, but we know that God wants to develop it, to deepen it. How we respond to suffering often shows actually a lot about ourselves. There's, I guess, a lot of ways people could respond to suffering, but let me just give you two. One would be a religious moral response. A person who would say, what have I done wrong? I need to do better, right? They would look at the problems in their lives and they'd say, maybe I should pray more. Maybe I need to have more faith. Religious people believe that their problems can be fixed if they would just try a little harder. Job's friends come to comfort him from this perspective, but they can't escape their own religious chains enough to bring him any real hope. All they keep saying to him is, you've screwed up, you need to do better. And what we find is religion offers no hope. This kind of religion. You see, religion thinks the problem is somewhere out there, but the solution is actually in here. The gospel of Jesus actually speaks the inverse. That your deepest struggle is in here and the, the, the solution to your problem is actually a God out there who comes to you in the name of Jesus. You can't fix this, right? But he has. So that's religious perspective. That's what we see for about 30 chapters. But there's another response that I think we live with a lot in our day. And it's a cynical, um, almost atheistic uh, response. It would say in the midst of suffering, well, you know what? Nobody can control this. Uh, It's just it's a mess. You know, life is this crazy series of happenstance like. There's no God, but even if there is a God, he sure is terrible at this whole thing. I mean, look at this thing. Look at this problem. They would say to you, my my problems actually prove his absence. Cynic navigates suffering with a mixture of resentment for a God they don't think exists and emptiness. They live for fleeting joys of the weekend to eat, drink and be merry because this life is all there is. So live it up while parts of it are good.
Well, all of Scripture, as we read through and we get to the book of Job, we know and we've been learning that all of Scripture is actually mainly telling us who God is and how He intends to save us. So with that in mind, I want to teach us from the book of Job who our God is. First, God is sovereignly in control. He is sovereignly in control. When it seems like the world spiraling out of control and we encounter suffering on some level, maybe not on the level that we're reading about with Job, but things are sovereign, or they're, they're spinning out of control, we can rest knowing God is sovereignly in control. We, we, we get a glimpse into a heavenly courtroom. While it's not necessarily the most comforting things we read there, we have to at least acknowledge what we see. And here's what we see about God first. God initiates. He initiates. Do you see what God says? Have you considered my servant Job? This is God's initiative. Secondly, God permits. Satan says, well, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be so faithful to you. He's only faithful to you because you've blessed him so much. If you take away those blessings, he's out. He'll, he'll turn on you in a heartbeat. And so God permits. He allows Satan to do some evil. He says all that he has is now in your hand. So God permits. And then thirdly, God limits. He says only you cannot do this. You cannot do that. So in this picture, in this heavenly courtroom setting, this conversation between God and Satan, we have to at least acknowledge who's in control. It's not Satan, mainly. Satan's operating under the authority with the permission and, and within the guidelines right. of a sovereign God. Now, as I said, that may not be the most comforting thing. Because then we have to wrestle, well, if God is sovereignly in control, then why am I suffering? And we get Job asking this question for 30 plus chapters. I realize this idea stirs up a whole mess of questions for us. Especially if you've endured any kind of suffering remotely like this. And some of you have. What's the alternative? Think about what is the alternative to a sovereign control God? Well, maybe it would be a God who's up there, but he's really not powerful enough to stop evil. Can you trust this puny God? Even if you could trust him, that's not the picture of God we get in the book. Or maybe you would say, well, God is powerful enough. He's certainly big enough. But this is an even worse question. If he's allowing this kind of hardship, is he really good? Neither one of those are good options. What are we left with? What we're left with what the book teaches us, which is the truth. We have a sovereign God, sovereign. I want to wrap up these ideas in the word sovereign. Here they are. He is all powerful. He is all wise, meaning he knows things you don't know. He's doing things you'll never know. And he is all loving. 
I can only conclude from this text, God's initiating, His permitting, His limiting. I can only conclude that God wants us to know about Himself that not even the worst sufferings happen outside His sovereign control. Well, by the end of Job's story, God's going to actually return to the theme of His own greatness. It's actually, it is actually God's sovereign rule over all things that quiets and calms and comforts a suffering soul. That God is big and in control. Now keep in mind, Job and his friends, they actually have no clue about this heavenly conversation. Like Job has no idea that conversation has happened. His friends have no clue. It's just a test from God They have no clue. And so they're just wrestling in the earthly wine. God doesn't even give Job the comfort of knowing that his suffering is somehow serving some greater purpose. That whole thing plays out all the way to the end. You would think that God would say, Job, hey, look, and I know this is tough, but like thousands of years, people are going to be reading your story. It's going to be amazing. Lots of suffering. People are going to be comforted through your hardship. God doesn't even give Job the comforting thought of knowing that this is all working to some greater good. I mean, it's it's not like what we have in Joseph's story. At the end of a lot of trial, a lot of betrayal, a lot of suffering with Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph actually saw God's sovereignty unfolding. That he's working, suffering for ultimate good, right? We saw that unfold. Years of unjust suffering, being imprisoned, being sold into slavery, being wrongly accused of rape and back in prison. All of the things happened to Joseph. And then we finally see that Joseph sees that God was using suffering to put him in a position to actually save God's people, including his sinful brothers. And in Genesis 50, Joseph makes this incredible claim about the sovereignty of God saying this to his brothers. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, that's radical, right? Now, don't misquote that verse. Be careful that you don't say what you meant for evil, God has used for good. Because it misses the teaching of the book. God is actually sovereign even over evil. He's not just using what the enemy, his equal counterpart of power, which is not true. Satan is some equal to God and he's doing all this mischief over there. And God's like, "Mm, how can I fix that? What can I do to resolve the problems that he's stirring? I know what I'll do. I'll That's not how that works. We see that in the book of Job. It's not just what what you meant for evil, God uses for good. That's a misapplication. The truth is what they meant for evil, God meant for good. There's intent built into this. Intent and initiative are given to both evil brothers and to a good God. So God not only uses suffering for good, he actually intends your suffering for good. In Job's situation, we would apply the same concept. We could say rightly what Satan meant for evil to destroy Job's faith. God meant it to deepen and develop Job's 
faith. God wasn't just using his sufferings. He actually meant them for good. Job actually said it this way. He acknowledged this truth to be true also. He said in Job 122, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He didn't say the Lord gives, but Satan has taken away. He acknowledged both the Lord's hand in in, in blessing, in favor, and in suffering. Now consider for a moment before we move on the pinnacle of all suffering. The, the, The worst act of evil that Satan has ever conspired against any man. What is it? The worst act of evil against any man in all of history. What was it? Jesus, and specifically what? To crucify Christ, right? We would have to acknowledge this is the worst act of evil of all time. Who planned that one? Make no mistake. It wasn't the enemy. What Satan meant to foil God's plan of salvation by ending the life of Jesus. God meant that same cross to be the very means of salvation for sinners and the exalting of the life of Jesus. God is sovereign even over our sufferings. Second truth about God from the book of Job is that God is our supreme treasure. I love, love, love Pedro's exhortation this morning. So on point. Thank you, brother. Satan's whole premise with Job was that his faithfulness to God was only because of his prosperity. Did you catch that? Each time he says, well, Lord, you've blessed him tremendously. Take away those blessings. He's out. I mean, look at how God had blessed Job. He had 10 kids. Personally, I'm not sure that's that great a blessing. Uh, yeah, five is a lot. Ten. I don't know. Thousands of livestock, loads of property, houses, land, barns, lots of money. The respect and admiration of all his peers. This is Job had it all. I mean, he was the Bible says the greatest man in the East. And Satan believed that if he lost it all, his faith would crumble. Now, we actually need to give Satan some credit here because this accusation could have some merit. I wonder if it does with you. The accuser, that's what Hebrew hasatan means, the accuser. The accuser is arguing, of course he's faithful, God. Look what you've given him. Take it away and watch him turn on you. And what's at stake here? At the bottom of this, what's at stake here is this question. Does God alone satisfy? God agrees to test Job in this because God doesn't want to be wanted just for his good gifts. I hope you hear that. No one wants to be wanted just for their good gifts, right? That's actually not love. That's manipulation. God wants our love to be free, not manipulated or bought. He doesn't want to buy your heart, buy your affection with his blessings. He wants your full heart, fully satisfied in him and him alone. Have you ever had someone 
use you just to get something from you. Yeah. What you come to find out is they actually weren't interested in friendship. They weren't really interested in relationship. You, you actually come to find out that they didn't really care anything about you. They just wanted something you had. So what Satan's getting at here is, does Job really love God? Or does he love what he gets from God? Consider for a moment the prosperity gospel. It calls people to come to Jesus to get more wealth, to get better health, to get more stuff. You come to Jesus and he'll bless your life. It's a lie. Calling people to love God. But really, it's to use God to get what they really love. Right. The truth of that message is it is not good news. It offers no hope of salvation because it only pushes you further into your idolatries. Where Jesus is not your all satisfying savior. He's only your butler. Giving you what you really want. And make no mistake. Satan doesn't just work to pull on your faith through suffering. Oh, he will bless you right out of a relationship with God. He will flood your pockets, give you the job of your dreams as long as you turn from God. Satan is betting that Job has found God to be useful, not truly satisfying. Well, how about you? Is God merely useful to you? Does God help you keep your, uh, your reputation? Does, does God and church help you network for your business or ease your guilty conscience or... Fill in the blank or or are you truly satisfied with Jesus? (laughs) Mother Teresa said you will never truly realize God is all you need until he becomes all you have. And that is what is being tested in Job's life. Satan is asking the question, will will Job still love you after he loses it all? Well, this. uh, This cosmic encounter unfolds with incredible suffering, right? We read that. And then 30 plus chapters of a lot of banter back and forth about why. Why has this happened? What is God doing? Why would God cause this suffering to you? What have you done, Job? What have you done? Lots and lots of questions. And then at the end of the book, God finally answers, but not in the way you might think. Third truth about God is that God uses our suffering to reveal himself, to reveal himself. If you look with me, turn in your Bible, Job 38. We don't have time to read all of it, but I would encourage you to. This is where God has he has been observing this whole thing for 30 plus chapters. And then in, in chapter 38, he interrupts the divine silence with some very pungent words. Look at Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Ooh, that's a tough rebuke. And he says to Job, dress for action like a man. 
as a challenge. I will question you and you make it known to me. So the Lord now is finally responding to all Job's questions. And he says to Job, look, I'm going to ask you some questions. You tell me the answer. And then he begins in a series of questions and get the point behind them. The point is not to get to the answers. It's to discover a great, huge, big God that you can't fathom. God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what, what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up it in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds, its garment and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? And he goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Even at one point, he says, Job, are you to question me with that mouth I gave you? The point of these questions, again, are not to get answers. We all know the answers. Of course, Job had nothing to do with creation or sustaining the creation or birds or animals or the sea, the land, the stars. Job has nothing to do with all that. He's small. And God is great. There's something that happens as God begins to reveal himself to us. And it's a perspective shift, right? In the middle of suffering, we feel like this world is all about me. It's very internal. The hurt, the pain is real. And it is. But there's so much more to this world and life than me. And God's saying, pull your head out of the sand, man. Look around you. See how great your God is. Job wanted answers. He wanted explanations. He thought, if I just, listen, this is important. Job thought, if I just know why all this has happened, I'll be able to cope with it. He wanted to put God on trial. He could be the judge. God, you tell me why you did this. I'll tell you if it's fair. Instead of explanations, God gives revelation. He never told Job Job why, but he showed him who. When you see the power and wisdom of the Lord, you're able to move beyond the the why and, and start trusting the who. This is God's intent, not to give answers, but to give himself. In Job chapter 40, verse 4, after the Lord's first speech, Job responds in this way. I am small. That's the right response, right? He says, what what shall I answer you? You know what? I'll just cover my mouth now. Let me just I've spoken once. I've spoken twice, but no more. I'm done talking. That's the right response. In Job chapter 42, we see something new. Look with me at Job 42. After the Lord talks again about his greatness, Job responds, I uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then in verse five, look at it. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes 
have seen you. Now here's the truth. Here's what's happening. There's, there's something that happens in your suffering if you allow it. There's something that happens where you get a vision of God that you would have never gotten otherwise. You get to see things about Him that you would never know apart from the depths of your pain. It's the truth. I think about the end of Mark chapter 4, for example. When Jesus tells His disciples, we're going to get in the boat, we're going to the other side. Jesus gets in the boat, He falls asleep. What happened? Do you remember? Anybody? A storm came through. And where's Jesus? Asleep in the boat. This is a terrible storm. It has professional fishermen scared for their lives. The disciples panic. They're distressed. They begin to scream. They're throwing stuff overboard. They wake up Jesus and they assault his character with their questions. Look at what they say. Do you not care that we're dying? Now, is this not the kinds of questions in the middle of the suffering of Job? What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't turn to them and say, well, guys, of course I care. Just settle down. No, just calm down. He doesn't do that. The scripture tells us that he rises, goes to the edge of the boat, looks at the sea and speaks a couple of words. Peace, be still. Now, I want you to notice in this little bitty story, what's happening is very similar to what happens in Job's story. The disciples don't get answers to their accusative questions. They get a display of power. They don't get explanation. They get revelation. They don't, after Jesus calms the storm, they don't go, if you could have done that, what took you so long? Right? They don't say that. Because they've now seen something they can't get over. They say, who is this man? What kind of man is this who speaks to the wind and the waves and controls them? How would they have seen that apart from a storm? They wouldn't. It's in the middle of revelation of a great God that the questions of your heart get settled down. It's the same for Job. How could he... Well, he could now see a great God and God honored his faith. And we read at the end of Job's story that his health is restored. He, everything he had lost is restored. He's even given ten more children, seven sons and three daughters whom are named in the book. And God rebukes Job's friends for their false advice. And, uh, and, and Job prays for them. And God forgives even his friends. And it's a, it's a honestly, it's kind of anticlimactic, the ending. After 30 plus chapters of Poetic suffering. The ending is really brief and short. And I get the idea that the ending, the resolution, isn't actually the point. We get so caught up in the idea of, well, God's going to work this all out for good. What if He doesn't? Will He still be enough? Maybe we should ask John the Baptist. Jesus. I mean, I'm here in prison. I know you're out there doing great things, but... I'm like starting to doubt. Like they say they're going to, they're about to. Are you the Messiah or is there someone else? And Jesus says, hey man, 
The lame are walking, the blind are seeing. It's amazing. Yes, I'm the Messiah. But you're going to die. It doesn't get any better for John the Baptist. If this life is all there is. But if we believe what Pedro said, what the Word of God said in Philippians 3, that to die is what? Gain. If we believe that, oh, JB had a blessing. He got to meet Jesus. He got the real answer to his question. Are you the Messiah? Yes, indeed. Here he is on his throne. Right? So this brings us to our fourth reality. And it's driven by the questions throughout the book of Job. Uh, I want to highlight these. Maybe, Sarah, you can put these on the screen, I hope. In Job chapter 4, verse 17, there's a question that's buried in the text that comes out. This is the question. That um, God has been answering on every page of scripture that we've been reading. But here it is. Job asked this question. He's pondering his own death. He's like, you know what? I, I, I just cursed the day I was even born. Would that I could just die in this suffering. Some of you can relate. You've been in darkness like that. And you've been like, I just need to be done here. Well, in the middle of those struggles, Job starts thinking and imagining. And God starts revealing, you know what? Death is not all there is, buddy. That's not going to be the end. You're going to live forever. And in the middle of all that, Job is like, what? What? Okay. And this question surfaces. Look at it on the screen. This is one place. Job 417. Job says, can a mortal man be in the right before God? That's a great question. Can a man be pure before his maker? You know, all of Job's friends are saying, all your trouble is your fault, Job. And he's saying, well, if if I'm going to meet God face to face, how can I ever be upright enough? The question's repeated. Chapter 9, verse 2. Look at this one. Truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? It's a great question. He repeats it again in chapter 25, verse 4. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? And here's the answer. God will rescue through the sinless, suffering Savior, Jesus. All the Bible has been pointing us to this end and Job is no exclusion. Sinners can be made right with God through a sinless, suffering Savior named Jesus Christ. Job's story is pointing us to the truly innocent sufferer. God handed his righteous servant Job over to suffer that his faith may be tested. Sure. But God handed over his beloved son to suffer and die so that our faith may be anchored in him, in his goodness, not ours. Guilty, but blameless Job suffered. Guiltless. But blamed Jesus suffered so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Job grumbled and complained in the midst of his hardship. Jesus endured mocking and beatings without complaint. Job defended his own reputation, declared his own integrity. Jesus, though perfectly innocent, remained silent when falsely accused. Job 
determined to put his hope in God, even if he killed me. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. But Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, knowing that it was God's plan before time that he would die on the cross. Job felt abandoned by God, but Jesus was truly abandoned so that we never would be. Jesus is the true and better Job. He is the truly righteous one who suffers on our behalf. And anyone who sees Christ as the sole satisfying treasure that he is can be washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus has suffered for you.